0: Welcome to episode 14 of the Better Billing Today podcast. I'm your host, Adam Welchel from Spark Billing Services. On this podcast, we're talking to owners and operators and their staff of small practices and clinics, and together we're creating a positive patient financial experience, streamlining your operations and improving your cash flow at Better Billing Today. We're covering topics like hiring and training and software and changes in HIPAA compliance and insurance billing and coding. Uh, keeping you up to date on the best industry practices so that you're running your practice and your practice is not running you. Today we have a special guest on our show, Dr. Herman Mariana. He's an otolaryngology specialist and his patients call him Dr. Matt. But before we get to our interview with Dr. Matt, I want to share uh, an article from Yahoo Finance that um, really speaks to something that we talked about last week, which is that AI is not a solution to medical billing or the medical... uh, Industry as a whole, when it comes to the cost of medical care and the complexities around billing and, and getting reimbursed for the providers and and really helping the patient get what they need, which is care, um, in a way that doesn't cripple their family financially. Um, and unfortunately, there's that problem is is so prevalent right now that there's even two nonprofits in uh, California and Oregon that are partnering to solve this problem?
1: Uh, Paid medical collections are going to come off of credit reports starting in July. So that's a really big improvement for a lot of people. Also, these medical collections need to be in collections for at least a year to show up on your credit report starting in July. That's up from six months now. And then the other change, which takes effect next year, has to do with the amount of the medical debt. If it's below $500, it'll be disregarded from the credit report. So these are all changes that I think will help a lot of people's credit scores.
2: And I mean, and you said in your notes that this is a continuation in how some of these score algorithms give less weight or disregard certain types or amounts of medical debt over the last several years. How significant is this going to be for people's credit scores?
1: For some people, it could lift their credit score 100 points or more. Somebody who otherwise had really good credit and is dragged down by this one instance of medical debt. And that's really emblematic of what's happening here. There's a push from the CFPB and the lending industry to say, you know, medical debt may be a little apples to oranges here. If it's a one time, maybe literally life and death kind of situation, that's different than your month in, month out, credit card bills, car loans. There's also a lot of confusion with respect to insurance, which is why they're going to have this one year waiting period after it goes into collections, giving people more time to sort it out. It reminds me of other shifts like taking public records such as tax liens and library fines and traffic tickets off of credit reports. I think the industry is moving more towards credit-like obligations, things like buy now, pay later, streaming plans, cell phones, those seem more reflective of credit risk than things like medical debt and traffic tickets.
0: Uh, I love the very last quote of this article, and we're going to put this in the show notes for you. Uh, He says, we have to take a hard look at what's happening and start to affirmatively say, we don't think this is acceptable anymore. Um, Referring to the fact that we're the only country in the world that can put our citizens in crippling debt through medical service, or at least we're one of the very few countries that would do that. We've said it on the show before that we are the middleman between the evil insurance companies and the provider that has a, an intention to help his patient or her patient and, and the patient. And it's really unnecessary uh, that the medical billing process and the cost of medical care is set up the way that it is. I mean, in the article, the uh, the quote from the CEO of these nonprofits, he says, we've normalized the abnormal. It is not normal in most countries for medical care to be something you fear because it will put you in debt from which it's almost impossible to recover. If being right in the middle of this in medical billing, uh, knowing that the, the doctor is wanting to care for the patient and knowing that the patient can't afford to pay for the services, we are in the, we are in the thick of this issue right now. Where you are calling a patient who you know they, <laughs> this is your third call in a month, and they're just trying to find the money to pay this because they don't want your phone calls and we don't even treat this like a like a collection agency, but it's more of just a an accounts receivables process. We just have to stay in touch with the patient. You know, I know at Spark billing, we do our best to make sure it's not a collection chase down uh, experience. We want to improve or create a positive, patient financial experience, but it is something we have to consider is the patient's financial position. And you know, I love what these two firms are doing to help alleviate or at least confront the problem, that our costs for medical care are unsustainable. Our practices for billing patients is unsustainable. Our relationship with the insurance companies is not sustainable. So it's very interesting to read this article and talk to doctors like Dr. Matt and working with insurance companies and being in the middle and, and realizing that this business, the medical billing space, um, is, is going to be at a very vulnerable p- place to be because patients, you know, they, they sometimes will not even go to the doctor because of the cost. And when it's very difficult for the providers to get paid, it's very difficult for services uh, like medical billing, outsourcing services like Spark for them to get paid. And it's uh, even more difficult for the patients to pay that bill because of either the rising cost or the complexity of the billing and not being able to understand your bill. Those are all just the layered issues that we face in medical billing. And so these two firms have come together to unite and solve $110 million in medical debt. And that's nearly 70,000 individuals from Arizona, California, Nevada, Oregon, and Texas um, according to their their statements they provided to Yahoo Finance, I want to read this to you. Uh, one of the uh, one of the CEOs told Yahoo Finance that he's hoping that the healthcare system will look more broadly at its billing practices, its collection practices, and its pricing and focus on transparency and start to rethink some of that. I don't think the industry has paused to look at its own morality or amorality, uh, just meaning that they're being immoral with some of these, pricing practices, these collection practices. Um, you know, But I think it's it's definitely lower than that. I mean, last week we talked about the AI being this Band-Aid solution, this bolt-on, add-on solution that doesn't necessarily r- treat the root of the issue. And it's funny that all of these articles um, are popping up that talk about the sickness of the medical industry, the, the unsustainability of it, the fact that um, it it cannot continue the way it's going, and it and we are going to crumble on, under our own disease of billing and collection and pricing and and, and surprise bills. I mean, we have these are we have these laws like the No Surprises Act, but that's a that's a response to amorality and unsustainable business practices in the medical industry. Um, so I think it's it's great that we have these people pushing really hard and making a lot of noise. To help transform uh, the medical billing industry and the, just the medical care industry, one thing that's really sparked their uh, their aggression in this space is that insurers, even using AI in some cases, have been criticized for quick denials of coverage without even looking at the claim. The insurers are accused of just denying, you know, the claim uh, because of the high volume. You know, they figure. If, they're, if they really want to get paid, they'll try again. And just forcing that extra effort on the provider and the patient to get paid. Forcing patients to learn self-advocacy and negotiate with insurance companies, while hospitals have been criticized for aggressive debt collection strategies, only backing down when the issue goes public or the patient negotiates. But the truth is, if the insurance companies didn't make it so hard for the patients, the providers to get paid, the hospitals, if they were covered, wouldn't have to chase the patients and have these aggressive debt collection practices. So it's really, again, I think this comes down to evil insurance companies forcing providers to take extreme measures to get paid, forcing patients extreme measures to get covered, even though they should be covered and they are they qualify for the, the service that they received. So I'm encouraged that there's these two in, uh, nonprofit insurance companies that are helping wipe out this debt and really raise the issue um, but we do need to make these issues more public. We do need to hold insurance companies more accountable, uh, providers accountable when they're not working with the patient in a way that improves that patient financial experience and and really address the the heart of the issue. If you want the links to this article, they are in the show notes. And at this time, I want to welcome back to the studio Dr. Matt.
2: One of the few solo guys left, you know, you? to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most people are going either into multi-specialty groups, single-specialty groups, or employed by hospitals. And interestingly enough, I talked to this young lady. Young lady, she's my age. It's not that young, I guess. <laughs> but I talked to this young lady who's a dermatologist, and she, she was a PA before she became a dermatologist. Uh, and then subsequently, she's she's had practices. There have been an employed uh, dermatologist in different groups in Orlando, Winter Park, and great locations, you know. Uh, and then for whatever reason, I haven't dug deep in, into her personal reasons. Um, has not liked it and has so sort of jumped different practices. And right now, she's living here in Polk County, but goes two days a week. Goes out to Melbourne, well, one day in Melbourne and I think one day in Winter Park. And I told her one day, I said, "Why don't, why don't you open up your own practice?" And she's like, "I'm scared." And I said, "What are you scared about?" I said, "Just," I said. I said, do you know? I don't. I don't. I said, I don't know what you make as an employee, but this is what you have the potential to make as a, an independent physician. Her eyes got really big. She's like, what? I said, yeah, this is what you can make as an independent physician. She goes, but I don't know about billing and coding. I said, well, I didn't either when I started this. I said, but it's a learning process. And I, I said, you're working at the other two places two days a week. You've got three days a week to to start and grow slowly. So I, anyway, but she's uh, the, uh, what's holding her back is is fear. That's yeah. really what's holding her back. I mean, she knows medical, but she doesn't know the business part and she's afraid to learn the business part.
0: Absolutely. And that was one of the questions I had for you was, you know, did medical schooling teach no. you about business? No. And how do you how did you make that transition from doctor to business owner and doctor? What was that like for you?
2: Oh, that's a, okay. So I, I think a lot of it had to do with the program that I that I was trained at. I had a, a very personal one-on-one relationship with several of my trainers, physician trainers. Yeah, and one of them in particular was very business savvy and was always you know talking to us about business and he was talking about business and incorporations that was way over my head and I was lost half the time. But one of the other residents who was a year ahead of me was always into it and was always into the business component, and so he'd start talking a little bit about it. and So it kind of sparked my interest. That was kind of a little bit on the side, but they did such a great job, in my opinion, my humble opinion. (laughs) They did such a great job of training us as surgeons that most of the people in my program, when they finished, went out and practiced on their own. A lot of physicians, a lot of surgeons go out and practice under other surgeons because they don't have that confidence as a surgeon and they want to continue to gain experience. They want to have somebody to help them out with their cases uh, because they're truly nervous about how to do surgery. We got sunk in from day one. Day one, I remember walking in and it's here like you do this case. My eyes are bug-eyed and I'm like, what? And says, so, yeah, you know, do, you know, do this. And it's like, all right. So they, they just flooded us with the amount of surgical cases that we did. I remember when I looked at my logs when I finished my training, I had 5,000 surgical cases that I had logged. So we wow. operated every day of the week except for Friday. Friday we did not operate. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, no less than 15 cases a day. And sometimes more, depending on, you know, maybe you'd finish with one surgeon and then another surgeon needed help, so you'd go to another hospital, run out there, do the cases. And we did all these cases, again, four days out of the week for, for four or five years, and and just, they started you um, with the most complex cases, you know, open neck cases, cancer cases. And so by the end of your first year, I mean, we were comfortable doing big, radical neck cases. You know these eight-hour cases, and if you weren't comfortable, you were in the wrong spot. And it was a philosophy of, uh, you know, hey, we've got this case going on. Do you want to go take Do you want to go take your lunch break, or do you want to sit down and do the case? No, I think I'll skip lunch. I'm going to do my surgical case. And exactly. So it was you would sacrifice everything else to be in that surgical case. Didn't matter time of day. Didn't matter whether you had breakfast or lunch. You learned how to how to how not to eat. Yeah, you learn how not to eat and how to go through surgery. So we came out with those huge violent cases that by the end of by the end of our training, you're so comfortable with surgery, you don't need to work under anybody else. And my personal personality is I don't take direction very well from other people, and <laughs> I knew I would have a hard time being under somebody telling me when I could breathe, when I could yeah. see patients, and I knew that I wanted the autonomy to. Uh, uh, decide which days I worked, what hours I worked, if I wanted to work nine to five, if I wanted to work eight to four, uh, whatever the case might be. And and I didn't want somebody else telling me uh, when I could when I could be off and when I had to work. So I knew that I wanted to be independent and by myself at that point. So, so a combination of being able to 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 set up my own practice the way I wanted it and having the confidence of knowing. Uh, that I could do the case by myself without the additional assistance of another surgeon.
0: So you talk about a fear that uh, I hadn't considered because I've talked to many business owners, um, their startups or their establishing businesses that are you proven demand for for the service. It's not like you're you're entering a new market, um, but you've brought up a, a situation where the the person who may not start their business because they actually need. A little bit more confidence that they can do the cases themselves, not just the, the business itself. It's actually the the technical competency to feel like I can actually own the outcome of this case by myself. Do you think that is more common a reason that people wouldn't start their own practice, or is it the business scare?
2: Hmm. I think you'd have to ask that to other uh, other individuals. But from what I have seen. And I saw a lot of people in, in my in my specific field going out and doing sub sub specialty training because they felt like they needed more time. Mm. They weren't comfortable doing the cases. Uh, I, I would say that there was a handful of people out there just not comfortable with being able to do they didn't have the volume. I would remember I, I remember visiting other programs where we would go to get some specialty training and I would see what their residents were doing and a lot of their residents were not Hands on. They mm. were watching a lot of the cases. Um, they were doing just very simple, very basic stuff early on in their first year, and it would take them, you know, uh, up until their up until their third or fourth year before they started letting them do these complex cases. Wow. So the fact that they let us do these complex cases early on certainly gained your confidence, and it made the easy case, it made the, the simpler cases that much easier. To, to perform.
0: So it sounds like there's two hurdles to overcome, to have your own practice. And that is technical competency and, and feeling that you can handle the cases as, as as you need to. And then there's the business uh, side of it. Sure. Uh, you know, choosing a location, setting up your business, hiring people.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, you don't
0: have an HR department usually when you're a small practice. Right. Uh, you are the HR. Yeah. Um, so me, I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of small businesses, there's the there's the difficulty of being small. There's the benefit of being big, but the difficulty of growing. And so, um, some of our listeners, I think, are are either they have their own practice, they want to grow, or they want to start their own practice. Um, how did you? When did you make that transition? From did you ever work for somebody else? Or did you, you Okay, so you've always had your own practice. And what was it like? You know opening your doors and hiring somebody and you're like, I don't know how to do business, but I know how to do the technical mm-hmm. thing that I'm here for. So did you ever surround yourself with other uh either advisors or partners? How did you make yeah. sh- how did you make that transition? So
2: combination of things. So um when I came into into this area, I was actually recruited um uh, by the hospital and having, you know, I I went out to multiple headhunters, told them what I was looking for and so went out to different areas, and the reason I chose this particular location was actually kind of fit what I wanted. I didn't want to be in the big city. I didn't want to be in Orlando. I didn't want to be in Miami. I didn't want to be in New York. I wanna so this Lakeland at that time was a small town feel, but the hospital at that time was looking for um, an ENT, an otolaryngologist, and uh, similar setup at other potential at other uh, at, in other places but certainly wasn't going to have that opportunity in Miami because Miami doesn't, they're, they're not looking for ENTs because they have more ENTs than they can handle. Guys are going there because either they like that big city atmosphere, they, they, their spouses like that big atmosphere. I didn't. I wanted—I grew up in a small town, and I wanted to be in a small town. So um, the places that we're looking at all tended to be small areas, small towns. So the hospital brings you in, and they want you to succeed. So to some degree, they, you, can, you can bounce things off of them. They'll actually, if I remember the first year, they had kind of a practice analyst that would come in and give you advice, come in at six months and, and kind of analyze, see what you could do and how you could, uh, how, how you could maybe reformat or, re, or change things around in the practice from that. So the hospital doesn't want you to fail uh, because they want you to stay in the area. Two was finding other physicians that were solo practitioners and talking to them and, and their business model. How did you grow How did you grow to your business? What are the things that you did to, uh, to bring in patients and to keep patients? What are the things that you did? What type of marketing did you find successful? So, yeah, it was a combination. I mean, I, I can remember in my first year particularly um, because you're not as busy. If you, if you look at my first year in practice compared to now, I had a lot of free time on my hands. Yeah. I always joke that that first month that I practiced, I saw one patient. So I wow. saw one patient in my first month of practice. So it means I had a lot of time to either just waste, and do nothing, or to go out and learn the business. And right. that's what I did was I went out and I shook a lot of hands. I shook hands with physicians. I shook hands i, I uh, with business people. Um, I got to know different physicians and establish their referral patterns um, and in that process, and getting to know them, uh, started to learn the different components of the business. So the nice thing about having one patient in a month is you've got all day in the world to figure out how to bill for that patient, how to yeah. how to code <laughs> all the things. Yeah, I did a lot of I did a lot of things that weren't maybe necessarily, um, well, that, that required a lot of skill. But uh, so my thought process was this: the hospital recruited me; they gave me, and part of That's part of what makes it easy during that first year. You think, oh, how can you survive? How can you succeed seeing one patient? Well, you can't. But when a hospital in that situation recruits you, typically what they do is they will give you an income guarantee. Mm -hmm. So they'll give you an income guarantee, and it it depends on what you negotiate. Your income guarantee might be for um, one year or it might be for two years. So in my situation, it was a one-year income guarantee. So... My philosophy was uh, I didn't turn anybody away whether I accepted their insurance or not. So my my thought process was if I don't take this person's insurance – but they come in and I see them and I can't bill for them. I don't really care. I'm seeing them as a patient and once I am under their insurance, guess what? They're going to be established yes. under me. I could have easily said no. I don't, you know, I don't I'm not established with insurance and they would have gone away. They would have started they would establish themselves with another ENT. 6 months later, once I was under their insurance plan, would they have come back to me? Not likely. They would have stuck with the ENT that they had already established themselves. So that's how I started to grow. So yeah. a lot of my first Patients, especially in the first six months, I wasn't getting reimbursed. I didn't really care. The hospital probably cared, but I didn't really care because um, maybe, I, maybe I would charge them whatever their copay would have been, but I didn't charge them. I didn't send them a bill. Right. I was getting reimbursed by the hospital whether I was getting paid or not. Yeah,
0: and that's that's uh, it's actually a really good marketing strategy that most people may miss because you're going to spend dollars advertising, or you're going to spend time serving a patient who has a good experience, right. might tell others, and might keep you as their ENT forever, as right. long as you get credentialed with their insurance company sure. then. Uh, but that's a great, It's, I wouldn't even call it guerrilla marketing, but it's just smart business, which was build relationships, that's establish trust, and and get a reputation for great care.
2: That's right. I didn't yeah. care if I got paid for it or not, because the, the hospital was, my, my goal was to grow patient volume. Yeah and And I knew that at the end of the year, once I was under all the insurance plans that I needed to be, and once I had negotiated those, then that patient would be my established patient. That's great. yeah. yeah.
0: What was your first hire when you uh, started?
2: Well, I came into my practice with two people. So I don't okay. uh, let's say there were two people that I had talked uh, that I had talked with uh, prior to opening up my practice. I said, "Hey, I'm going to open up a practice in Florida. Do you want to help me out? One of them, was my ex-wife? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she she helped me. She helped me. She was uh, she had had experience back in my hometown working. She had worked for physicians, so she knew the front end. She knew the reception. She was a very personal individual. Um, I think she'd done some billing and coding, so she knew a little bit of billing and coding. And then the second individual that that I that I asked to come join with me was an individual who happened to be kind of in dire straits. An individual who um, had left another country uh, was a fa- was a family member, not directly but indirectly. He was married to a cousin of mine, but they were here. They were kind of struggling uh, being uh, outsiders, but they were u s. citizens or they were in the process of becoming u s. citizens, but wasn't really working in his field. The advantage I had with him was that in his in his in the country where he came from, he was an accountant. Oh, but being an accountant, he couldn't be an accountant here. He didn't have a CPA license here, uh, and he had worked for a large, a large um, oil company. As a matter of fact, in the other country, so all he really cared about was succeeding and finding a way to pay his rent and pay for his family. Yeah. So he decided he wanted to come with me, and so I put him to learn the billing and the coding. In the, in the practice, very organized individual, far more organized than, than me, so organized that I can go to him to this day and ask him for documents from 15 years ago. And I'll say, give me a few minutes, 30 minutes later, he'll come back to me with a folder and say, here you go, this is what you're looking for. It, and I said, I wouldn't find it. I'd be looking, I'd be stumbling through papers all day long, and and I'd never find those documents. So. It's,
0: it sounds like you uh, you know, you saw the gaps in the business as you know, looking holistically at the business, you know, you've got service delivery, you don't have marketing figured out yet, but you're doing a good job, you know, being scrappy with it, customer service and care. Um, You've got finance, and you've got uh, administration and scheduling and patient follow up and you know, verification if it once you get credentialed, but it sounds like you put two people in key positions, they were both administrative. And how long did that support you while you grew your practice?
2: Oh, I'm trying to think. Um, I d- definitely the first six months, and I'm trying to think, uh, I think in the first six months then we my now uh, ex-wife uh, moved into a role of more uh, physician assistant, helping me out in the rooms, putting patients in the room. and I think we hired uh, a receptionist. yeah. so then I think uh, I think we kind of m- my my uh, ex-wife kind of learned, every aspect of the business, to be quite honest with you, except for probably the billing component Mm -hmm. and just helped me out with, uh, with scheduling patients, uh, and then helped me out in the back with, uh, with, uh, putting patients in rooms and, and procedures in office procedures, those, that, that type of thing.
0: So you have somebody who's really taking care of it, almost like they're the administrator, the business manager, the office manager. Of I the still practice. consider,
2: always considered myself the manager because I okay. was always the one kind of making the decisions. Uh, I tried to, um, I tried to allow them to, uh, take on some of those roles, but realize that I wasn't always happy with their decisions. So I always took on that, that, that role. I'm still, I still micromanage and, and, and the reality is, is because they are, um, good at certain things but they're not good at all the things that I need them to do sure yeah. so let's talk about Lewis for example I think he's he's very good with finances he's good with numbers but he's terrible with people. <laughs> He's terrible with people. He's not he's not very good with my employees. He doesn't know how to handle them. He doesn't know how to talk to them. You know, they're he intimidates them, he scares them off. Sure. And so he doesn't really know how to do the HR. And I and I've had multiple conversations with him, but it's just his personality. Sure. As organized as he is and as good as he is with finances, he's just not good with people. <laughs> and uh, then you talk about Maria. She on the other hand is, is good with uh, taking phone calls very pleasant has a, a pleasant appearance dresses nicely is good at receiving people is good at being friendly to small children but she can't she doesn't know the financial aspect right. doesn't know the the billing aspect doesn't know how to keep track of of uh, ins and outs the expenses of, of the practice yeah so there was nobody who really had a good hold of of all of those things. Yeah. Um, and and although I didn't, I'm not great at any of those, I was great at managing and telling them what they needed to change or what we needed to improve. Maybe I would tell them what we needed to improve and I would let them figure out how to improve that. And then we would they would report back to me. Yeah. So that's why I say it's kind of a micromanagement. I'm I'm not good at billing and and coding, sure. but I but I do know what to tell them to look for and what things we need to change out. In other words, I'll I'll ask him for to look for trends. Yeah. What are the trends on this and he'll report back the trends and I say, "Well, okay, well we need to change this or we need to modify this." I need you to figure out how we're going to do that
0: exactly. Get, you know, setting the target of the right. result, correct, and and sometimes poking them to look in certain directions, correct. Uh, and and that is the that is the captain sort of mentality. Right. I'm I'm steering the ship. I'm not always down in the engine
2: room, right. Um, and, and in talking to the person at the front at the reception, it's okay. So who are we getting referrals from? Okay, and the next month is uh, have our referrals have they have they slowed down from any one of our referring physicians? Okay. Call his office. Talk to his referral people. Did we piss somebody off? Right. Did something? Somebody have a negative experience? Did something happen? And if they did, tell me and let's correct the problem there.
0: Yeah, that's great insight. Um, where do you see your practice going? Do you feel mm-hmm. like there's a practice that serves your lifestyle and that it it's on a you've got it to a you've got it set up
2: where you want, or are you in growth mode? Oh. It's a good question. No, I'm happy with the hours that that I'm at, but I'm always, uh, I I guess, growth only from the standpoint that making sure that we always have uh, an appropriate number of uh, referring physicians that we've got, uh, that our referring physicians are happy, and that if one retires, well, we need to pick up another. So it's not, you never know when somebody's going to retire, or you never know when one of your referring physicians is going to relocate. So we're always establishing new contacts Um, one of the things that I personally do is I ask the hospital to send me a list of any new physicians that are there that are coming into the market, whether they're employed by them or not. And then we reach out to them as they open up their practice, whether they're employed by somebody or not. And if I reach out and I talk to them, uh, and they haven't established, if you can grab a physician before he's established his referral patterns, then you're going to make a friend for life, and he's going to refer to you. I had one doctor. This was many years ago, um, but I remember. And this was when I was in the growth mode, and I would take. Um, it wasn't during the first year, but it was certainly within my first five years. So I wasn't. I wasn't slow, but I wasn't at my. I wasn't at my busiest either. And I would go out on on Fridays, maybe once a month, and I would meet doctors, maybe new doctors that were in the area. And I remember going out to this one doctor. And introducing myself to him, and he said, "You know what? I've never had another doctor do that to me." And ever since then, he's referred patients to me. It's incredible, just because it was because he had that personal, he had that face uh, face contact. You know, he knew the person, and he would feel comfortable um, just reaching out to me if he needed to. Yeah, I give them my, my cell phone, and I tell the the referring doctors, "If you need to call me, um, call me. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll be happy to answer a question for you." Um, there's, a, there's a local, well, I would say a hospital within our county that doesn't have um, any ENTs that participate or, or have privileges at that hospital. Um, so when I realized, and they used to, um, but when I realized that they didn't have that, I went out and I met with their emergency room physicians, and I told their emergency room physicians, if you've got any questions, I said, I'm not on staff here, but feel free to call me. And so they started contacting me every once in a while, on calling me and asking me questions. And, and as I would pick up my phone because they didn't know what to do with a certain case. Did it need to be hospitalized? Did it need to be transferred? Could it wait till Monday to be seen in somebody's office? Then they started sending me those patients. That's amazing. So it's uh, a matter of the re- uh, personal relationships. I love that.
0: And that's that's sometimes the, the if you talk about business, it, it's the lowest cost of acquisition. It's I'm going to Build trust, deliver great care, get referrals, and repeat that cycle over and over again. Um, I want to kind of shift the conversation just to, just a little bit towards, um, you know, practice development. Sometimes we'll call it business development or um, improving the operations of, of your service. Um, you know, let's say you have a practice and it's, it's going okay. It's not, you know, you're, you'd, we've talked about growth, but there's also maturity, there's also operational maturity, administrative maturity, the way you work with your team, you know how you have your systems set up, and maybe you don't like your billing system or your scheduling system or you don't like your location, and so there's these transitions, these milestones that you'll hit in in your practice as you want to kind of create your ideal scene. Um, and as I talk to business owners in this in this uh, about this, sometimes it feels like it's in order to go two steps forward, you have to take one step back. And have you ever been through a a situation in your your practice where you were trying to move towards maturity in some area, but you had to undo some things and it was a lot of work and it's, some people would just rather sit with what they have than to go to that next level. Have you, do you see your practice as something that you have to push through and get to the next level? I know that in online businesses or in businesses that can grow, that's not medical. That's a, that's something we talk about a lot. It's just growth and, and mastery and maturity. Um, But what's that look like for a practice who's trying to improve and reach the next level?
2: I think that comes down to service, providing service and making sure that you're... um Providing good service to your patients, providing um, in
0: all aspects of the business, right? Not just you, but at the front desk and billing and accounting and.
2: But they, you know. but they, they're all they're all related with the with the patients, so they're all yeah. coming in contact. If anything, exactly. they come in contact with the patient more than I do. Sometimes exactly. it's either on the phone or in person, uh, so they have to they have to be able to relate to the patients. And I always tell my patients. You know, sometimes they'll tell me too late. You know, they've had a bad experience with an MA or or with a receptionist, and I, you know, I even I just remember within the past four months, a patient coming in with a spouse, and I think the spouse was seeing me, and he says, "Oh, doctor, I haven't seen you the past year because a year ago I had a bad experience with uh, one of your staff members," and I said, "Well, tell me this, tell me the story." And he told me the story and then I, I had a conversation with the with the staff member later on and I told him, I said, I wish you would have told me this sooner. Yeah. And he said, Well, you know, I really like you as a physician, but I really that that, that employee made me really made me feel nervous and anxious every time I would come in now. Wow. And so I had to I had to switch to a different practice where I wouldn't feel that.
0: That's amazing. And and so, so if you had this if you had this going on in your practice, um, and you felt like, in order for us to go to the next level of service and care, I'd have to remove somebody from staff, or you know, look for new people. And sometimes the pain of replacing people is something you don't want to confront, and you'd rather just live with the people you have. Either because you don't know how to replace them, you don't know what they know, uh, you don't, you're not confident that you could find somebody better. Has that ever happened to you in the practice? And sure, yeah, how do Absolutely. you how do you handle the the fear of moving backwards
2: so you can move forward. Well, I think the, I think the biggest uh, obstacle, it's not even an obstacle, but the biggest issue in what you're dealing with is that even even a person who knows the business, it takes uh, weeks, if not months, to train them the way that you want them. So if you've already invested, if you've already invested time into them, And then all of a sudden, you're going to decide to get rid of them. You know that you're going to have to invest time into another person before you get them up and running at at your level or the way you want them to work. But it's worth it. I think that's the. It can. It can be. We went through that through that situation not too long ago, for reasons that I can't really talk about at the moment. But um, it turns out that the person that I replaced them with hadn't been in the had, had practiced had been had practiced in the medical field. Uh, maybe seven years ago. So she was a little bit rusty, but overall um, had a has had, I should say, because she's still with us, has had a good relationship, if not a better relationship, a more honest relationship with her coworkers. And although it took her a little bit of time, the end result was better.
0: It sounds like you're, you're saying uh, something that we reflect at Spark Billing, which is we'll hire the person and train for the results. And it sounds like that not just patient care, but in intercompany relationship, interpersonal relationships with the staff, that's going to cascade to you. That's going to cascade to the patient. That's going to be really important for you when you're deciding who to hire. Uh, And it's not just about the technical skill they bring. Is that, did that weigh heavily in your decision?
2: It did. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It did.
0: Uh, Do you have anything for me? I don't want to cut you off, but this, I've really enjoyed this conversation a lot.
2: Uh, no, uh, I mean, uh, I've, I've, enjoyed the conversation as well, but I, I, am trying to think of anything specific. Uh, I, if anything to, uh, to business owners, don't be afraid, uh, grow slow, but, you know, be able to project and be able to change. Uh, don't, don't expect to, uh, don't expect to start at a hundred percent, you know, growth is growth is good. Uh, slow growth is not a bad thing. It gives you time to learn. It gives you time to, um, probably adjust and modify the things, uh, that you're doing in the way that you're running a company. That's great. Just take your time, grow.
0: Yeah. And it's funny you say that because one of my questions was, uh, is there any advice you'd give to a, a physician that's looking to start their own practice or improve theirs? And it sounds like you just answered it, but if there's anything else you
2: have to add. I'll be, I'll be honest with you because we're seeing a, a drastic change. and I've had this conversation with other physicians. We're seeing a drastic change in the model of of the physicians, and we're seeing less and less uh, less and less physicians in private practice. And I think it has to do with the development of the of the of the physician model and the de- development of the physician um, training modules. Um, I've had this discussion with uh, one of the administrators at the hospital. I uh, talked to him. Said, you know, I've seen a couple of physicians come into the hospital, and I haven't met them yet. I said, they've been here six months, and I still don't know. I've, I've heard their name, but I don't know them. And uh, are they so busy that they don't need any business? And he just kind of laughed and and just said, No, you know what? What we need, to, we do need. We need to get them out there. That was one of his comments that he made. The next comment that he made was he he and I were having a discussion. and I told him how many. Um how many patients I you know, I have a goal of seeing, you know, per week per month because I know how many patients I need to see in order to to, to, to make the payroll for yep. everybody. Uh, but in the discussion also with another subspecialty group, they said that they were experiencing, they were having a hard time finding physicians that wanted to run in the model that they have, mm-hmm. that they wanted uh, physicians, uh, that would want to be partners. That would want to track, but they were finding more physicians that were wanting to come out and just wanted to be employees. And I asked them. You know, we sat down. We had this discussion, and we think a lot of it does have to do with the way that we were trained. And when I say that, I don't mean how we were trained as physicians. Uh, in other words, not the not the medical knowledge, but back when I trained, you worked till the work was done. And that was, our, our, that was the way we, we did work. So yeah. if that meant you worked, uh, you got to the hospital at 5 a.m. to round so that you could see and, and all your patients before you started surgery because we had to have those rounds completed before we started surgery. If you didn't have them done, you didn't start surgery. And our goal as surgeons was we wanted to operate. So we got there, and if that meant we operated until 7 p.m., and then you saw more patients to see. Then you went and go. You went and saw the other patients that got admitted. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. We didn't clock in and clock out. We never said, "Oh, you know what? I've been here since eight o'clock. Uh, I need my hour lunch, and now I've got a I've got a clock out because it's five o'clock." See you guys. I'm going home. That just didn't happen. Yeah. You worked until the work was done, whether you were on call the night before or not. And <clears throat> between then and now. And I think there's some, some goodness come out of it, but they've limited how many hours a physician can work in their training.
1: Wow. So
2: these, these newer physicians are used to, okay, well, I've already worked these many hours. Uh, I've got, I'm going home. And that's the mentality of the new physicians that are coming out. Um, they work uh, so many hours a day, so many hours a week and that's not the way it happens when you're starting a business. When you're starting a business, it's putting in the time. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I've got the luxury now that that I can kind of put a stop to things and I can slow it down, but but the mentality and the way we were trained is completely different. We worked until the work was done. It didn't matter if it was 36 hours or if it was 40 hours or maybe we had a light day. Maybe it was a day where we got our work done. It was a Friday and we got our work done in, in four hours and we got – go home and enjoyed ourselves. Yeah. Uh, but the physicians now they're limited into the, how many hours, uh, and they log their hours and it's kind of like a pilot, you know, you can, it's like being on that runway and, Oh, you know, I've reached so many hours. We're going to go back to the, uh, we're going to go back to the gate and you guys have to find a new crew. Sorry. That didn't happen in my day. Wow. In my day, we, we worked until the work was done.
0: Well, and it's, it, like you said, it sounds like you were, uh, groomed to, to have grit you know, a little bit. Yeah. That's, that's impressive. Uh, and I can, I can relate and admire that because you know, there are days where we're putting in 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day when there's a big project that we have to uh, kick off. And that is the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and some physicians may have, and some of them don't, but can you, can you create it? I think you can learn it. I think you can push yourself hard enough. If you set a big goal that's big enough, and you kind of create that necessity for yourself to overcome the, the luxury and convenience that we want, um, you know, some, uh, some famous people have said, you know, live like no one else so that later you can live like no one else. Sometimes in the early days, it's hustle and it's, it's hard work and grinding so that later when you have a practice and you may want to sell it one day and you have a multiple that can, you know, come from that, it could set you up in your later years for uh, a, a different life that being an employee doesn't give you. Dr. Matt, this was a, a true pleasure to have you on the show. I'm so grateful that you're here and uh, sharing with our audience um, the lessons that you've learned. And, well, thank you. Uh, I
2: appreciate it. Yeah, hope to have you back someday. Appreciate your time. All right.
0: And remember, you can find this episode and all of the other ones on your favorite podcasting platform through BetterBuildingToday.com. We'll see you in the next episode.